Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Varying Viewpoints podcast developed by the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice. I'm your host today. My name is Natalie. I'm a communications intern for the Proctor Institute and the Rutgers Center for Minority Serving Institutions. Joining me today is Yolanda Wiggins, uh, Assistant Professor of Sociology at San Jose State University. Welcome, Yolanda. How are you today? Hi, Natalie. I'm great. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. We're so excited for you to be here. Um, So today we're going to be discussing how it is that PWIs or predominantly white institutions can better serve their students of color. So for context, uh, inclusivity and diversity has become an attractive area of focus for college administrators across the country. But as PWIs become more diverse, they end up lacking the resources and support required for many minority students to succeed. And higher education has become more accessible and necessary in our social landscape than ever before. However, if higher education is to remain an engine of opportunity, then it has to work for everyone, right? Especially students of color, first-generation students and low-income students. Uh, For instance, students of color attending PWIs are 6 to 16% less likely to graduate than their peers at historically Black colleges and universities, Hispanic-serving institutions, and tribal colleges and universities. Supportive environments and resources are prioritized at HBCUs and other MSIs, uh, minority-serving institutions. Therefore, students are, are more likely to succeed. Resources such as diversity inclusion offices and cultural centers that are foundational at HBCUs and other MSIs are often disproportionately underfunded at PWIs. Thus, minority students at these institutions are left to fend for themselves. Recent studies have pointed to the ability of HBCUs to develop Black students' perceptions of feeling supported, as well as greater post-graduation success than at predominantly white institutions. While many top PWIs often struggle with providing the necessary support mechanisms for minority student success, surface-level access, I'm putting that in quotes, to resources continues to attract students of all backgrounds. Students of color may only realize how inaccessible these institutions are when they've already committed to the school, and this sets them up for potential failure. So hopefully through our discussion today, we can contribute to an important ongoing conversation and help piece together some answers and calls for action. So Yolanda, it's a pleasure having you with me today. Let's get started. Yeah, I'm super excited. So I wanna first start by saying that I'm a product of public school systems in Flint, Michigan and Washington, DC. And so my interest in education is this um, uneven playing field. That's how I'll characterize it. In some sense, it started during these early informative years. I remember uh, finding out that my high school mock trial coach, shout out to Mr. Connor, that he graduated from uh, Yale University. And then I remember asking him why he chose to come back and work at an inner city public school in D.C., when he could be teaching anywhere. And so even at this super young age, we were all made privy to how little teachers made, especially in urban schools. And I remember him looking at me and saying, "Um, you don't think you deserve to have well-educated and qualified teachers. And so from that day, many, many moons ago, that stuck with me and it really shaped my ambitions and dreams. And then it later on turned into this exploration of educational inequality. Um, should I dive into just a discussion of my research? Yeah, I just wanted to ask. So throughout your career, you've focused, published, and presented at national conferences on the experience of Black college students attending PWIs. And it sounds like you have a lot of personal uh, kind of background shaping that. So could you talk a little bit about your work and your findings? 
Yeah. Um, so first, I want to say this research is supported was supported by the National Academy of Education and Spencer Foundation, and also UMass's UMass Amherst's very own uh, Center for Research on Families. Um, so this was largely supported throughout my graduate studies at UMass. And so my research um, explores the involvement of families in the lives of college students from the perspective of students, from the perspective of families and administrators and staff at a place that I'll call a flagship U. And so uh, this research centers on the ways in which Black students, Black families are able or unable to support their sons and daughters and how college students help their families in return. So college students, and you probably know this more than I do, right? Like they're typically viewed as takers, right? Like so rather givers and providers providers to their families. And I became interested in Black familial involvement and student giving during college because not a lot of research explores this phenomenon. So many studies on college students giving back, they tend to overlook the Black family and focus on family exchanges of immigrants from Latin America and Asia. And that's great, but it's missing a whole other group of people um, because uh, family interdependence in the Black community, it's its not new at all. So um, my work points uh, that from slavery through civil rights to present day, um, this, this helping tradition is key to sustaining the Black family. And when I say family, I'm referring not only to moms and dads and siblings, not only nuclear family members, but I'm also talking about aunts and uncles, cousins, grandparents, and fictive kin. So those who aren't necessarily biologically related to students, but they're still considered family. And uh, the point that I want to drive home is that family patterns for Black families have always been complex. And this began during horrific separation of Black families during slavery, when Blacks had to constantly and continuously recreate um, their families. And so that's a mouthful. So how does this you know, situate within the context of my findings? And so I first interview students from Black students from financially advantaged and disadvantaged backgrounds. And I found that uh, families of advantaged Black students, they already had the material and cultural resources to help and not be helped. But I found that uh, financially disadvantaged students, and this is the core of my work, they provide the most support to their families. And they talk about a number of ways that they assist their families, but three most common types of support I found were that students give practical assistance, they give money, and they give advice. And so disadvantaged students who give back during college, they described it, describe it as feeling uh, pushed and pulled. So they very much want to be involved in their families, but being involved in their families also means that this detracts from their academics. So it's like, even though they say they were frustrated, they kept reiterating during those interviews that giving back was essential for their families to thrive. And in some cases, um, survive. So that's the student piece. And then the second piece is that I conducted interviews with moms of the students that I previously mentioned. So I traveled all around New England and I interviewed moms in their homes and at their places of employment. And this was cool because I was a graduate, a poor graduate student. So I got a lot of uh, home cooked meals. <laughs> so shout out to the moms. <laughs> 
moms. Um, but moms, I found, serve as connectors of Black families. And this came out in my student interviews. And I found that mothering experiences as it pertained to their involvement in their college-going children's lives or not, this largely varies by class. So disadvantaged moms assume what I call a more hands-off approach due to their limited university-specific knowledge, whereas advantaged moms, they're more hands-on as a result of the college knowledge they possess. And so disadvantaged moms, they talk about um, providing their sons and daughters with emotional support in a way that um, advantaged moms did not. But they also talked about feeling excluded and stated that flagship use messaging targeted more affluent parents and families. And so while uh, advantaged moms, they often uh, read their students' papers, they gave them advice, they called the university to straighten out academic matters, they also rejected being labeled as um, what many administrators and staff um, in higher education uh, narratives deem as like the helicopter parent, you know, like being overly involved, unwilling to cut the uh, invisible umbilical cord. And the advantage Black moms, they said that they're protecting their kids from racism and discrimination that are prevalent on white college campuses. So they need to intervene um, on behalf of their students. Otherwise, no one else um, will advocate for them. And then lastly, to just triangulate all of my data, I talked with a wide range of administrators and staff who work in on-campus offices that regularly interact with families and students, and I mean a wide array. So I spoke with people from athletics, dining services, admissions, disability services, res life. I talked to janitors, campus police, and this is just like only to name a few. Um, and I was curious about the ways in which an organizational structure like a university aims to bridge the gap between families, students, and the university, and how interactions with families, they vary largely by race and class and gender and even citizenship status. And so I found that this consumer mentality of advantage white parents led um, many of these on-campus offices to restructure their approach to cater to these families in particular. Um, I also found that interestingly, black college personnel who comprise uh, the majority of minority administrators and staff on campus, they were far more knowledgeable of diverse family arrangements. And because of this, they went above and beyond their job descriptions to act as liaisons for families, and they oftentimes went out into the very communities that flagship youth students um, lived to better connect with their families. And I also asked staff um, who they weren't hearing from when, um, when they wished that families would reach out. And they said they wished that they would hear more from families of first-generation college students and families for whom English is not their native language. So this has been my current and longest project to date. And I'm thinking about uh, following up with the students and the families um, in the next two years or so to do a longitudinal study to, to further connect those dots. That is so fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing, Yolanda. It's so interesting. Everyone often forgets that familial aspect of students attending a college period, regardless if that's a PWI, an HBCU, et cetera, et cetera, because so much of family is what affects 
someone's longitudinal success at said institution. And when there's no communication between that institution and the family, that's that's fascinating um, what it can do to, to you know, uh, affect the student's success. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, students aren't just divorcing themselves from their families <laughs> once they're dropped off, like they're still heavily involved. And in what I'm finding is that disadvantaged students are super involved in their families and they and they don't get the full college experience um, because of ongoing demands and responsibilities to their families. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's that's incredible. Thank you for doing the work that you do and for sharing that with us today. Um, so kind of um, moving toward kind of how PWIs and, and institutions in general can better serve minority students. Um, there's often so much talk about diversity quotas and, you know, even though they're not allowed, kind of how institutions kind of get away with it. So um, if you have any insight, do you feel as though the majority of uh, predominantly white institutions are just kind of fulfilling these quotas and using students as a check mark, as a check mark almost? Or do universities actually try to help students of color with the resources that they advertise? Yeah, this is a good and challenging question. Diversity, oh my gosh, has been a buzzword in higher education for uh, the past 10 to 15 years, maybe 20. And so even though most colleges um, recognize diversity's importance in theory, um, it's clear that creating a diverse college campus remains a challenge for predominantly white institutions. Um, I've been involved with higher education in a variety of ways. So I've been an undergraduate student, a doctoral student. I've worked in assessment. And I've also worked at um, nonprofit and educational institutions at like the federal level that focus on more uh, educational policy aspects. So through these experiences, I've learned a lot about various institutions' quests to achieve um, diversity and their thinking around diversity. And I've seen colleges use uh, scholarships, academic programs, and um, the expansion of recruitment to create a more diverse student body. And um, just how these uh, attempts to engage students in conversation about diversity in the classroom have been transformed through student affairs programming. Um, I believe at UMass now there's a mandatory course on diversity as a part of um, graduation requirements. So, you know, there's so many different things, mixers and extracurricular programming that attempt to foster and create a diverse um, campus environment. And, and while I think these are all great initiatives, um, we what we re- rarely hear from institutions is how they're defining diversity, because diversity can vary from institution to institution. So, for example, one institution um, might feel that an increase in international students, for example, um, constitutes its diversity, whereas another institution, they might feel that an increase in low-income students will satisfy um, uh, its diversity among its students' population. But I think we need to reframe the discussion, especially for um, predominantly predominantly white colleges and uh, universities, to how can colleges and universities create inclusive environments for students of color and what does inclusivity mean? So um, predominantly white institutions, they routinely point to rising enrollments of students of color as evidence to their commitment to racial diversity and inclusion. 
But if we look at the statistics, so yes, college enrollment rates of minority students, they've increased exponentially. That's great. But even still, these are poor, poor metrics for measuring inclusivity. And it says very little about one, the social integration of students of color once they arrive on predominantly white college campuses. So the first step that I think that institutions can do is move beyond this numerical diversity, define what diversity actually means uh, to the institution. So instead, institutions should be focusing on subtle dynamics of campus exclusion and the extent to which students feel like they belong and that they are well mentored and supported. And in order to reach these goals, institutions, they need to have long and short-term plans in place. Um, I've seen campuses fall short on their diversity and inclusion initiatives because they're too broad in their approach or they simply don't do enough to um, implement them. So campuses uh, design diversity initiatives that are too general and they don't speak to the unique needs of different students because uh, undergraduate students aren't this monolithic group as we know. And so I think uh, many diversity initiatives are surface level interventions that don't truly dig deep into the nuances of their undergraduate student population. Other times, institutions try to pigeonhole a particular identity, but they also forget that students are an intersection of multiple identities. I'm a sociologist. I love intersectionality. So this is why... um, Voices need to, multiple voices need to be at the table so that a multitude of perspectives are being heard in order to think about um, deep, meaningful ways to ensure that these interventions are one ongoing. So not just simply a check mark, like you said. And if this isn't the case, then strategic plans uh, like diversity and inclusion initiatives, they become nothing more than just fancy words to back up an attempt at achieving a superficial structural diversity. So that that's my that's my take on it. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my gosh, you said so much in there. That was I, I you couldn't see me, but I was shaking my head. Um, I love when you said you know moving beyond that numerical diversity. So much of diversity is trying to be measured, and, yeah. and that's kind of how administrations can boast about what they're doing and all these. Um, uh, almost like fake measures, like you mentioned, um, that aren't actually surface level, I think you said, yeah, um, that aren't actually getting into anything. So uh, kind of moving along from with with that, um, at a lot of these PWIs, um, they always try to measure it in in numbers, as we just said. So, um, for example, like University of Massachusetts Amherst, um, they have more than, I think, 60% white students. Um, And so talking about these cultural centers and diversity offices and all these kind of efforts that uh, administrations are putting into place, they're very they're often presented as an asset. Um, they boast about it. It's, it's, you know, always such a, a, a pulling in kind of tactic. Um, but more and more, I know that, you know, these offices and diversity and inclusion and equity offices are getting defunded and shuffled into smaller and harder to find spaces on campus. So uh, kind of building off of what we just spoke about, how kind of getting to the nitty gritty. How can we fix this? You know, both at, you know, UMass and many higher ed institutions like it, who, in your opinion, should be responsible for both fighting for this issue and then enacting the actual change? 
Um, man, so thinking about just the higher education landscape, I mean, it, it continues to be more adverse for um, the students that you mentioned. So students of color, first gen students and low income students. And so college enrollment and even more glaring um, are completion rates for traditionally underrepresented populations. And these continue to be disproportionately lower for underrepresented groups of students than um, for their more advantaged peers. So what I'm finding over and over and over again in my research is that for students of color, Black students in particular, they feel totally disconnected from uh, their university. So it's like on the one hand um, is the issue of defunding at the college and federal level. And it's not just in regards to cultural centers and diversity offices, I would say. So like many of the programs that were robust and heavily funded and instrumental, even to my educational trajectory, like the Ronald E. McNair Scholars Program, um, which uh, uh, gets undergraduate students excited about research and the possibility of pursuing a PhD following um, their bachelor's degree um, is something that's been heavily defunded and I also was a part of. And then the Student Support Services TRIO program, I was also uh, a part of that. And even more uh, pre-college programs like Upward Bound that I also was a part of, they're severely hurting due to um, defunding and they're barely holding on. Um, they're severely staffed if they are still being minimally funded. So there is a greater student population in need than staff to actually assist each student in a deep individualized way. But on the other hand, for those programs that are still in existence, I do believe that uh, colleges and universities, they haven't done enough, um, a good enough job, I would say, in advertising the host of programs and services that their particular institutions offer, because there are a lot. And I found um, this out through my research and talking with various administrators and staff in, a, in so many offices. Um, but Students don't know and faculty uh, and graduate students don't know either. So they can't quite refer students to the resources um, that that they need. So a fundamental part of being a faculty member, in my opinion, at least, is to be of service to students. So when a new office is open, there's no huge announcement of its purpose and the sorts of resources that students can access there. So many uh, on-campus offices, they remain underutilized by the very, very students that they intend to serve. So what I'm finding in my research is that a lot of these programs benefit advantaged students because um, their families have that navigational capital to, to seek out resources on behalf of their students. And due to this, uh, the opportunity gap just widens. And now, yeah, and so now we're in the age of COVID and remote learning or hi hybrid learning, and students are tremendously disconnected from uh, resources, from cultural centers, from diversity offices. And one of the things that I do in my classes at San Jose State, and I do this every week, is highlight an office and support service um, that exists on campus in order to put it on my students' radar. 
Um, and this is just simply me announcing it. I teach a sociology of education course, so it might fit neatly with the unit that we're exploring for that week. But I also understand um, that this is a deeper issue. So just because I'm putting it on a student's radar, I also understand that most students aren't just going to readily go to the office, call an office, uh, even if they need support or mentorship, simply because I'm telling them to do that. Um, and so for my work, I also know that students work and they work a lot and they're not working to fund spring break trips or buy sushi. They're also working to support themselves and their families. So colleges and universities, these offices, they need to think about ways to restructure um, their student services in order to cater more to working students and families. So oftentimes the hours of cultural centers, diversity offices, uh, other student support services offices, um, the hours aren't conducive to the work schedules of undergraduates, so they can't get the help that they need um, if things fall within an eight to four or a nine to five time frame. And then another thing that colleges and universities need to do is simply demystify their higher education lingo. So using terminology that diverse groups of students and their families and faculty and, and graduate students for that matter can understand. So there's so many acronyms, as you know, and educational jargon um, that things aren't simply, they get overwhelming and they're overwhelming for me and I'm a new professor. So I'm just thinking back to me as an undergrad and I would have been lost if I didn't have um, profound mentors in programs like Student Support Services Trio and McNair, but also someone had to put those programs on my radar because I had no clue that they even existed. Um, uh, lastly, I'll just say I published a teaching collection entitled Demystifying Higher Education Lingo 101 um, with an organization called Solutions Journalism Network. And it's basically a collection that aims to teach professors, administrators, and staff on what I just said. So the ways in which we can level this playing field and highlight services and things that every student is entitled to at a college or university. So while sadly many of these offices are being funded, still many do exist and we need to start thinking about just ongoing advertising in the age of COVID um, to connect students or continuously connect students, especially during um, remote learning, but think about ways to get messaging and advertising out there, even uh, following uh, the pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah. I think actually I've been seeing um, more kind of advertising, like you said, because of COVID. So mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see how this kind of affects the uh, it longitudinally and affects how we think about this kind of messaging in the future um, because, you know, now that students aren't on campus, it, it, they kind of have to advertise and have to get their message out. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that changes once, hopefully, fingers crossed, we eventually get back onto campus. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's definitely very, very interesting. Um, thank you so much for that. Um, so as an undergraduate, there's a lot of um, kind of given the recent, uh, dare I say, uprising um, with kind of the Black Lives Matter movement and everything going on. Um, there's actually a lot of social media accounts that are highlighting 
um, like black voices and black the black experience and and students of color and first generation and so on and so forth. Um, and there's been so much that I've read there um, that it's it's directly taken from students directly quoted, um, and it's. Uh, it's kind of heartbreaking to read that, you know, there's, they hear all these good things about UMass, but, you know, they never take into account that all these good things were for non-POC and they didn't even think they had to like, and then they say that the longer they stay on campus, the more they realize that everything's catered to the majority um, except for a few organizations. And, and, you know, they almost wish that they were at an HBCU, which is so heartbreaking. So taking into account both, the admissions process and then student life on campus, how, in your opinion, can PWIs better serve their students of color, maybe in COVID, maybe in non-COVID, just always kind of a blanket question. Uh, oh, my, oh my gosh, this is an, uh, a core question that has remained in higher education. So this is a tough one, but I'm definitely going to tackle it because I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, I think about this all the time. Um, I will say first that predominantly white institutions, they've done one thing right, right? So they've they've made themselves attractive to all students, including minority students. Um, and so they're leaders in terms of facilities and sporting venues. They have so many amenities that um, facilitate the social aspects of college. And I'm thinking back to my undergraduate institution, they had a bowling alley, and I'm pretty sure UMass is currently building one in their student union. And these things are great. They're shiny and attractive, and they get minority students to apply and and attend. But uh, amenities and facilities aside, predominantly white college, colleges and universities, they're still largely unsafe and exclusionary places, um, just like you you mentioned. And I don't think there is enough uh, discussion around this topic. It's always intriguing to me about how um, white students who come from low income backgrounds and who didn't attend very good high schools, how they're still able to persist on uh, to graduation in college. And it's because they have peer support. They have faculty support. They also have support among campus services. So uh, PWIs, they can better serve students of color by first recognizing that non-faculty of color have a fundamental responsibility to students of color um, as well, not just uh, faculty of color. So in my work, um, I find that more often than not, as I mentioned previously, it's Black administrators and staff, it's other administrators and staff of color who serve as liaisons and support networks to students of color and their families. And their work goes above and beyond their job descriptions. It's time consuming. And many times it involves going out into the various com- various communities that students are from and establishing relationships. And sure, it's rewarding, but it's also a- almost always unpaid and it's largely unrecognized. So what PWIs can do Um, moving forward with that is to first learn its student population. And I mean, actually learn who's um, enrolled. And this goes beyond, um, I keep talking about numbers, but uh, uh, it goes beyond just annual assessment data that's collected at different points throughout the semester. 
So what I mean is explicitly acknowledging aspects of unrecognized diversity within the student population and normalizing it. So rather than striving to brand this universal college experience or portray um, the typical college student, colleges and universities, they need to move beyond this overused and frankly unrealistic narrative in their brochures and advertisements. So predominantly white institutions, they can also better serve students of color by obtaining student voices that represent um, various facets of the student population. So rather than speculating what students of color need, um, it's important to get the input from the source because students' needs are continuously changing. So that's where I'm, I'm at um, with that. That's how they can better serve um, students of color at PWIs. Absolutely. Yeah. All that kind of neatly tucked in. Um, definitely. I don't even think it's easier said than done. I think that's a pretty tangible uh, goal to work toward and then apply it. Like, I, so it's, it's hopefully, you know, things can, we can get the ball rolling here. <laughs> little money, little money. I know, you know, budget cuts are real, especially in the age of COVID, but like the, the steps that I've outlined, they, they're virtually free, like, you know, free or just of minimal cost. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so kind of moving from there, um, talking about kind of historically black colleges and universities versus PWIs and that kind of idea. I never like pitting them against each other, but I think we kind of have to here. <laughs> so <laughs> recent studies have pointed to the ability of, you know, HBCUs to develop black students' perceptions of feeling supported, kind of connecting with their families, as you said, um, and they can kind of foster that uh, a greater post-graduation success um, than at PWIs. So how do you think that PWIs can learn from HBCUs and other minority serving institutions um, so that uh, we can kind of put in kind of the, the aforementioned steps? Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, man, I love this question because um, there tends to be this like ongoing debate about whether or not HBCUs and other minority serving institutions are truly educating um, students of color, educating black students. And, and so instead, HBCUs and MSIs, they should be looked at as um, this model of how PWIs can better recruit, uh, better re retain, uh, make students feel a sense of connection to the institution and then graduate. So for one, these in I'll say that these institutions, HBCUs and MSIs, they don't have structural racism in their fabric, meaning um, that they were created to give students opportunities when majority of or virtually all of predominantly white institutions denied Blacks, for example, entry. So at HBCU, students have um, the opportunity to take diversity credits and learn about Black history. And this is something that's not prioritized at um, PWIs at all. Also, who's in the classroom matters. And it matters far more than administrators and staff at PWIs know or even acknowledge um, as an undergrad and a graduate student, I never had a Black professor. I never had a Black professor. And that does something to even the most educated, the most driven, the most motivated, et cetera, et cetera, student, right? Like, 
um, black student. So seeing someone who looks like you opens your eyes to the range of career possibilities. I never met a black person who had a PhD. Um, and, and that just says something about what reality can look like. Um, and, and again, like black faculty members, they represent less than 3% of the total faculty at PWIs. And that's that's insane. So meanwhile, HBCUs, they hire the largest total number of Black professors, advisors, staff, um, and administrators. And so HBCUs, they give students a chance to learn in a safe, um, diverse space. And also the class sizes are typically smaller. So students have an opportunity to get to know their professors on a personal level rather than just seeing them as a person um, who lectures a couple of times throughout the week. I'm super interested in the ways that PWIs can learn from HBCUs and MSIs in my own work as well. Um, so for example, although most colleges and universities have offices um, like that of parent services or something similarly named, they don't take into account the various family dynamics of students of color. Um, HBCUs and MSIs, on the other hand, they have offices on campus that are specifically geared to engage both students and their families. So going to college isn't this time isn't deemed as a time to separate yourselves from family, but at HBCUs and MSIs, it's looked at as more of a joint venture between students, their families, and the university. So like a, a trio, a, a venture. <laughs> um, and I think this is intriguing. And I also went to conduct a deeper level policy analysis on this very topic to then be able to provide a set of recommendations and programming ideas that PWIs can implement. Um, finally, PWIs um, are less likely than HBCUs or MSIs to recognize forms of capital generated by students and families of color. So rather than subscribing to this deficit model um, that students of color who come to PWIs, how they need to be taught uh, certain university-specific ways of acting and behaving and navigating the institution, HBCUs and MSIs, they're celebrating, uh, capturing, they're, they're celebrating the talents and strengths of, of students of color and what they already bring um, from their communities to the college environment. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Um, it's, it's crazy that there's so much apprehension um, to look at the models that, you know, MSIs and HBCUs are using and kind of learn from them and, and take a little bit from them. And it's, it's so bizarre that it, we're kind of still in that uh, like segregation type model in terms of um, the higher ed institutions. Um, so I, I think you're absolutely right. I think, I think we just have to learn from, from the, the HBCU and MSI models um, so that we can move forward. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, so Switching gears a little bit, um, we've spoken a little bit how um, there is this kind of uprising and and the these racial justice movements that are kind of gaining momentum and and these these political movements, how they're 
they're, they're just the, I'm not going to say buzzword. They're not the hot new thing right now. They've always been happening. They just have this kind of moment in this, uh, in this bubble of, of COVID and this moment of disruption that we're kind of living in, um, which is really, really exciting. So with that recent momentum, how can institutions themselves, cultural centers and diversity offices at PWIs um, kind of prepare for now that students have returned? Um, how, how can they, um, you know, uh, work toward kind of integrating that kind of idea um, into students' uh, campus culture and college culture? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what we're seeing right now is that many colleges and universities, they're trying to rebrand themselves as um, allies um, mm-hmm. this like current wave of social justice movements, particularly the Black Lives Matter movement, like you said. Um, and it's hard now, and especially given remote or hybrid learning, just the pandemic in general, to like truly gauge how institutions are responding. However, I will say um, that institutions, they're heavily leaning on the viewpoints and perspectives of students, which I truly appreciate. Students have, undergraduate students, graduate students, they have valid critiques of how institutions are meeting their academic needs or not. And students aren't just these passive consumers. And I think it's quite frankly inspiring how student activists are taking back, taking control back over their learning and their social well-being in college and racial justice, um, they're, they're saying, is, is just as important at the college level. And this also moves beyond um, the official anti-racism statements issued by many colleges and universities following, um, especially following the death of George Floyd. You saw a lot of institutions um, make, um, you know, national statements um, in support of Black Lives Matter. Um, And these are great, but also students want to see action behind those words. And one of the big things that colleges and universities can start doing um, prior to students return, but uh, well, since majority of students are still uh, are at college now. So throughout the academic school year is reassessing um, the police, its police presence on college campuses and looking at what this means for the safety of black students in particular. And I know many students aren't physically on campus now, but just looking at reassessing this now um, prior to students coming back physically on campus. I know that um, a lot of colleges, they rely on university or local police to respond to campus crime and monitor large on-campus events. But moving forward, colleges need to rethink these models um, for police intervention, investigation, and even event security. Also promoting racial equity in higher education, it it means that uh, colleges and universities need to explicitly state that they haven't adequately been of service to all student populations equally. Um, And so this means admitting and retaining more students of color, 
Black students in particular, whose presence, just like you said, is still minimal at predominantly white colleges um, and institutions. Um, this also means hiring more tenure track Black faculty and other faculty of color and giving them incentives to stay. So just as um, Black students, for example, largely feel isolated and excluded on predominantly white college campuses, many Black faculty and other Black uh, and other faculty of color, they feel the same way. So many universities are far wider than the states that they serve, both in their faculty and student body. So reassessing um, this. And then another idea is expanding the curriculum. And I, I uh, have enjoyed seeing this in the media. So expanding the curriculum to educate students about racial justice, um, incorporating more ethnic studies requirements. And Black students and students of color, they also need to see themselves and their diverse experiences represented in course material. One of the things that um, I did prior to the start of my classes at San Jose State was I, I researched the population of students um, that are represented throughout the university because in my readings, my course material, I know um, as a fellow person of color that representation matters, seeing yourself in readings um, and other you know course materials, it's important. So it's, you know, again, this is this is free. <laughs> this is free, but actually taking um, a step back and critically engaging with ways that students can feel included, they can feel seen, um, is is super important. Exactly. No, a hundred percent. We want to see you know these students as activists. We want to see educators as activists, administrators as activists. You know, even though that's not always their it shouldn't be their job, but that's how we want to kind of foster um, this mentality of, of moving forward um, and kind of keeping that momentum going and, and then hiring folks that do specialize in those kinds of uh, uh, things to then take some of that burden off of students and educators and administrators, um, because it's not, it's not, it shouldn't be on them. It should be on professionals we you know you go to the doctor when you have a cut you don't go to someone else you know um, (laughs) because they're not professionally able to handle you don't need that emotional burden Um, so that's kind of what we're always working to foster and support at the Proctor Institute so it's wonderful to hear you say that and hear you kind of highlight that um, in your own endeavors and and um, in your research as well so that's that's incredible Um, I want to thank you so much for for speaking with us today you've for sure, given us and, and all of the audience members um, a whole lot to think about. Um, thank you for all of your insights. Um, do you have anything, any last words, anything to add? Um, this has been incredible. <laughs> no, I, I want to thank you for having me. And I just want to say that, you know, active, going back to your point, activism doesn't always have to mean, you know, protesting with picket signs. Activism um, can mean just having a more inclusive syllabus, right? So, you know, activism is is fluid. Yeah. Exactly. No, 100%. Um, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's been a pleasure having you. Oh, thank you, Natalie. And for everyone listening at home, please remember to follow the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice on all of our social media platforms for more updates and content like this. Thank you so much and happy listening.